Welcome to Good and Decent, a podcast by Grotto Network. Season 2, Episode 5, Hands and Feet, with special guest Michael O'Loughlin. Michael is the national correspondent and associate editor at America Magazine. He is the author of Hidden Mercy, Catholics, AIDS, and Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear, which is based on the America podcast series, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Hey everyone, this is Javi Zubizarreta, the director of Grotto Network and your host today for Good and Decent. I am sitting in my car uh, just outside of Chicago where it promises to be the first really beautiful weekend of spring. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to two people who have really experienced what it is to go to the margins, to go to those most in need, most at risk, and show a radical, radical form of love. We're going to be talking to a reporter, Michael Lachlan, and the stories he's collected from people who faced a really terrifying virus, HIV and AIDS. And then we're going to meet Gary Short, a man in Cincinnati who literally takes the feet of the homeless into his lap and makes sure that they are clean and healthy. Even though we're going to some dark, dark places on the margins, I'm reminded that even there, we will find love. And like today, on what promises to be the first spring day in Chicago, after a long winter, there is hope. And there is hope to be found. So, I need to get out of this car and on with this interview. Stay tuned. Hi, Mike. It's Javi and Tara. Hey, Mike. Hey. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. It's nice to meet you, Javi. This is Tara. Hey, Mike. Well, thank you for sitting down with us today, Mike. Um, I we were talking earlier that you, as a reporter, and your background as a reporter, I have to imagine that this is this is the opposite of where you normally are. I was thinking that as I was getting ready, I'm like, wow, this is what people feel like when I'm coming to interview them. (laughs) I'm like, I'm much more comfortable the other way around. Yeah. How's it feel to be on the other side? Uh, I feel like I know <laughs> uh, what's coming, which is good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm much more comfortable asking other people questions than talking about myself. So even talking about the book has been a strange experience in some ways. I'm just curious where the project started and, and how you began with it. So it started because much of my reporting early on, uh, when I started reporting full time, uh, there was a lot of stories about LGBT issues in the Catholic Church. And I was writing about them because it was in the news. So sort of like what are bishops saying about debates over same-sex marriage? What are ordinary Catholics thinking about the issue? Uh, And for me, it was a way to kind of grapple with some of these questions I had as a gay Catholic. Um, I was able to sort of use my reporting to answer some questions I had. And it was helpful, but it still wasn't getting at what I was really wondering, which was, do I have a place in the church? Um, I think a lot of LGBT people and their friends and family sometimes feel like they don't. So I was talking about that with a priest friend and sort of explaining why I was interested in these topics and felt alone and isolated that I didn't have other people to talk to about these questions. And 
I told him it felt very new to me that um, like I was the first person trying to navigate this uh, space. What does it mean to be a gay person in the church? And he said he understood the feeling um, or at least appreciated like what I was saying, but suggested that that might not be true. And he told me the story about how as a young priest, he had been working on a college campus when he heard that HIV and AIDS was starting to affect the community a little bit. And he offered some space in the Catholic Student Center for sort of a support group for people impacted by the epidemic. Uh, and a whole story about how his bishop uh, didn't like that because he thought it was lending support to the gay rights movement and asked him to shut it down. He said no and mm-hmm. explained that in his view it was a pro-life ministry because people were dying. The church should be there to respond. And I hadn't known that about him. I had known him pretty well, known much of his ministry, and that kind of surprised me. And I really didn't know any of that history. And he said, well, you might want to explore that time, the 1980s and 90s, because there was this big uh, clash between the gay community and the Catholic Church, but also many people in a similar situation who kind of had a foot in both worlds and struggled with how to make that work. So I took his advice and spent the next couple of years kind of researching that, learning about all the history, reaching out to people, asking them to share their stories. And the result was hours and hours and hours of audio interviews that eventually we turned into a podcast and then eventually into Hidden Mercy, the book. I would love to ask you what you remember about the hospital. Much, much beloved establishment, all right? Uh, it, it, it was almost too popular because any Catholics not in the neighborhood, if you were, if you were uh, Dominican Catholic or Puerto Rican Catholic, you would gravitate towards a Catholic hospital. So it was really overwhelmed. I asked him what it was like to live here during the AIDS crisis. I lost all my friends, all right? You understand I'm 24 when I move in here, I'm 70. Uh, so this was, this was Auschwitz. This was a concentration camp opening up. So it seems like it was almost more of a personal quest even than any directed final product. How, what was your personal journey as you were, I mean, some of the interviews you have are so powerful. What was the impact for you there? Yeah, hearing the stories from the people who lived and survived that time and how they navigated their faith life was really moving to me um, because for me, this journey has been uh, difficult at times, but also encouraging kind of learning about other people who have gone through something similar. But to think about doing it at a time when the gay community felt uh, under siege by every aspect of society, so not even the support that we enjoy today, uh, including the church, uh, just so much pressure back then, and a very traumatic time, and a lot of that trauma came out in the interviews. If people listen to the Plague podcast or read Hidden Mercy, they'll get a sense of how even decades later there's still a lot of trauma in the community. So for me personally, though, it's been encouraging to meet people who literally helped create a space today that I think I sometimes take for granted, that I have a parish that uh, is welcoming and affirming. And that's not an accident because there are people who came before me who worked to make that happen. So one of the big takeaways uh, from these interviews has been, if there's a space in the Catholic Church that is welcoming to LGBT people, it's not by accident. It's because other people have done the hard work. So learning some of that history has been important to me to understand why I feel welcome in some spaces. If I can ask, Could you talk a little bit about what it was to feel alone as a gay Catholic 
Like, what was that space for you? Where were you in that? Yeah, it was not pleasant. <laughs> um, and I think I experienced that more in high school and college as I was beginning to understand things about myself, but not able to vocalize them to people I trusted. And I think a lot of that was my own fear about how people would react. Um, but I realized somewhat quickly that I could be honest with friends, people from church, uh, kind of priests that I knew well, and the reaction was almost always positive. And I realized I'm perhaps a bit unique in that situation. I know a lot of people have more negative experiences, but I've been lucky in that regard. And part of the reason I think I felt alone was because I didn't know the history. I didn't know that there had been LGBT people in the church uh, working to create spaces that were welcoming and affirming. And if I had, I might have realized that I'm not as alone as I thought. Part of it was simply I wasn't connecting with other LGBT Catholics because I was probably too afraid to talk openly in a way that would have uh, allowed me to find them. But I think even just knowing some of the history would have made me feel more empowered to do that to begin with. Can you just give us an overview of kind of who you went out to speak to um, to ultimately create the book and the, the podcast? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first one was kind of an accident. So I was in uh, the archives of the National Catholic AIDS Network up at Loyola uh, here in Chicago and was just thumbing through some newspaper articles and came across this small uh, AP clipping from the 80s about this pair of Catholic nuns who had moved from Belleville, Illinois to New York City for six months to learn about HIV and AIDS care. And I Googled their names, and one of them had passed away a few years before I started researching. But the other one, um, it took some digging, but I found her. Uh, she's uh, alive and well and was very generous. With a, I remember it was a hot summer day, and we had a two-hour phone call. Um, she kind of told me her life story, and I took notes and listened, asked follow-up questions. And we kind of stayed in touch, and I was very clear that I didn't know how the story would be used, that it was kind of a personal search for me. Uh, but that was the beginning of the research. And from there, it sort of blossomed into uh, Sister Carol gave me the names of five more people to interview. And then I sort of became obsessed with digging this story, uh, kind of figuring out who else was out there. So it was just interview one person, get five more names, reach out. And it just grew and grew and grew and led to uh, dozens and dozens of interviews over the next few years. Inside the Better Homes and Gardens was, I don't remember if it was The Advocate or one of those gay magazines. Uh, oh, ooh, hmm, this is interesting. And it was all the different sexual poses and stuff like that. And I'm like, and then when he came out, you know, and I talked to him and I said, Do you do that kind of stuff? And uh, yeah, he said, Make a difference. And that's what it kind of did. I said, I just had to be honest. I said, I really don't know. something that was so powerful to me hearing these stories was how these people sort of had to push past their own um, fears, their own sort of hesitations around ministering to these folks um, and not being afraid to truly lay hands upon them. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that was for some of these folks like Sister Carol? Yeah, so from the sort of societal perspective, the amount of shame and stigma around HIV and AIDS I think is hard for people who didn't live through it um, 
to comprehend. So people like me who were too young to remember it firsthand, but there's this one poll that came out in the late 1980s that found 43% of Americans believed that AIDS might be a punishment from God for people living an immoral lifestyle. And that stuck with me because you have 43% of Americans who are willing to express that belief to a pollster. So the number's probably a little bit higher. Um, so the shame and stigma is already really high. And you have people like Sister Carol and other uh, priests, nuns, lay Catholics who are nonetheless willing to engage with the community. Um, at a time, really, uh, especially early in the crisis, when there was a lot of confusion about how HIV was spread, a lot of fear and uncertainty about whether it was safe to right. be with people with HIV. And they nonetheless um, kind of did their research, learned that it was okay, and engaged in the ministry. But one thing that really stuck out to me was it wasn't a one-way street where you had people like Sister Carol kind of reaching out to a community in need, uh, though that did happen. But she had the insight to say that she benefited from the work as well because her own understanding of her own faith was uh, deeply broadened by her interaction with the marginalized, uh, mostly gay men who were affected by HIV. So it was really this um, sort of symbiotic relationship where she provided help and helped uh, launch this AIDS resource center in Illinois, but also her own understanding of what it meant to be a Catholic was uh, made more uh, deep and more profound for her. Uh, so I, that really stuck with me because I think centering the community uh, in need can be a helpful way of encouraging others not to be afraid to engage in that kind of ministry today. To that point of how hard it can be to understand the AIDS crisis um, in today's world, could you just paint a picture of what it was like at the height of this in the, in the midst of the most sort of uncertainty and fear if you were someone dying of AIDS in a hospital, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, and I am uh, indebted to people who kind of shared those experiences with me because I'm learning it all as someone who wasn't sure. uh, around then, doesn't know anyone firsthand who died from AIDS-related complications. So there's a caveat with that. Yeah. Uh, and I would say there's, um, in the book Hidden Mercy, there's this description of a special Stations of the Cross that a Catholic priest named Father William Hart McNichols created that he wanted people to understand the experience of someone dying from AIDS. And he created this Stations of the Cross that kind of leads someone through the various components of what yeah. might be happening. But one common element that emerged, I interviewed several uh, people who lost partners to AIDS, and they said that the shame and stigma was so great that people were often cut off from their families, so they didn't have that kind of support. Um, something that stuck with me in a profound way, just being a person of faith myself, is you had mostly young men at the beginning who were suddenly forced to confront these questions of mortality that I think a lot of us think will have decades and decades before we have to deal with that. And a common thing that people facing um, a terminal illness is to turn to their faith to help make sense of what's happening. But in these instances, so many of uh, these young men were cut off from their faith communities because of uh, the fact that they were gay or that they had HIV. And as a result, they didn't have those kinds of resources. So that's why I think it was particularly important for people like Sister Carol and Father Bill to provide the kind of pastoral care that was lacking. Um, and there are stories in the book about just the uh, prejudice that people at the hospital might be showing. Uh, it was not uncommon for nurses to be afraid to bring food into the rooms. Uh, even after someone died, the sort of... Uh, 
judgment didn't stop. Funeral homes often refuse to take the bodies. Uh, many churches refuse to do funerals. So there's that element. Um, in my project, I tried to focus on the people who did the right thing. So the churches that did do the funerals, yeah. people who provided the pastoral care. But the sense of loneliness that accompanied a HIV diagnosis is uh, very prevalent. It's especially heartbreaking I mean, for me as a fellow Catholic and to think of this of how our most basic callings as people of faith were ignored too often of not burying the dead, of not caring for them and the fear of just touching someone with AIDS. Yeah. Many of the sisters I interviewed who were working in the hospitals or the lay nurses working in the Catholic hospitals that uh, became really um, iconic AIDS uh, clinics or AIDS uh, resource centers talked about the importance of touch and how people with HIV and AIDS were really cast from society, um, not even just from the uh, wider society, but even in the gay community, there was a real fear around the issue. And as a result, they were kind of cut off from their community. So that sense of not being afraid to hold someone's hand as they're going through something uh, very painful and lonely. And I, that stuck with me um, because it was known pretty early on how HIV was spread and sure. that touch was safe, yet so many people were still afraid. So just those intimate moments of being by someone's bedside who was dying and not being afraid of touch um, was something that came up over and over again. So um, in this episode of Good Decent, um, we were thinking of, of these early examples of such hidden mercy, but also such profound mercy that was being shown to, to folks. And um, thinking of it in the present day. So this is a story we did uh, a few years back out in Cincinnati um, about a gentleman who's providing uh, foot care uh, for the unhoused. So we'll play it for you just so you can kind of see where this episode is going, perhaps. A lot of our clients are just on their feet all day. They're shuffling from one location to another, whether it's looking for the next meal or whatever shelter that they may need for that night. And it's wet, it's cold, and when the feet get wet, uh, that's when they get the most stress on them. So this is my 25th year of doing foot care uh, for the homeless in greater Cincinnati. Gary Short runs a foot care ministry called Foot Care for Souls. They give free pedicures, first aid, and shoes to the homeless and those working in poverty. Foot care and service in general is a blessing because, you know, just like shaking somebody's hand, that's a very personal thing. When you have someone's feet in your lap, it doesn't get much more personal than that. 
Timothy, how are you feeling today? So, how's your health overall? Everything good? No medical conditions I need to be aware of or anything? Okay. Diabetic or anything? Diabetic? Okay, how's your feet? Sore. Sore. Okay. <laughs> Let me know if I get a sensitive. Anything sensitive? Let me know. Yeah, it would. thing at the bottom. I can feel it already, right there, right? Yeah. yeah. That's it. And that's where I walk. That's it. Oh, yeah. Nickel. Nickel. Work on that a little bit. No shortage of work there, is there? Fixing houses. I just hate grout. <laughs> you know about grout, yeah, I, do. I mean, it's okay. I think when Christ washed the feet of the disciples, that was so symbolic of service, of, in fact, lowering yourself to the lowest level possible, which is when the feet touch the ground. That's certainly central to what we do, that we are serving people from the ground up. Come back, we'll work on those okay. a little bit. Yeah, you can be more comfortable with <laughs> One lady came in one time and she had lost all the feeling in her foot. We referred her directly to the hospital and she came back two or three weeks later on crutches and she says, you saved my foot. You know, there was a, a situation that was going on that the doctor said if I'd have continued to ignore it, then I probably would have lost my foot. I just feel the that one-on-one -on -one interaction with the people providing something so necessary that I receive so much from. That's my ministry. That is reaching out to these people and and yet receiving more than I give. All right. <laughs> You'll come back to see us. All right. Excellent. You meet a. Let's try that one. Uh, How's that feel? Lace them up and take two steps around, give them a test run. So we can always go up a size. That's what we're looking for. Thank you. Everyone. Julie, let me get you a it hurt a bad, she fixed on. Good, good. Yes. That's good to hear.
this month at Grotto, we're talking about marginalia, sort of the hidden figures and what it is to go to the margins and what we find there. And I'm just curious, going through this process for yourself, of, of going back into the past, into the, some of the most marginalized moments, and, and the present too, I should say, you discuss about the AIDS pandemic in South Africa and, and how it is so very much alive. Um, but I'm just wondering, what did you find when you went to the margins like that? What did you get out of all of this? That's a good question. Um, and like the video, I think so much of this ministry takes place away from the limelight. And there's sort of the culture war issues that dominate uh, the Catholic news like uh, any other news. But on the margins, you find these very intimate moments of ministry, uh, quiet, um, not talked about too often. Uh, the people performing the ministry often don't want to bring attention to themselves. The people receiving the care often aren't in a position to bring attention to the ministry. So I think some of the church's best work is performed at the margins. Um, when people hear that gospel call to care for those in need and live it out in profound ways, I wish um, these stories were more well known. And I see part of my role as a journalist to help bring attention to them because it is the, our church at its best. And I've been encouraged by the people who work at the margins, how their faith is deepened by that work. And I'm uh, really honored by the opportunity to be able to share some of those yeah. stories as well. There's a, an irony there of how much hope you can find at the margins in people's suffering. Yeah. How do, how do you sort of put that in context for yourself? It, it's a hard thing because uh, people living at the margins, it's not an easy life, right? Um, and just by spending some time with uh individuals who are ministering at the margins, um, you get a sense that it's not an easy job either. Um, sometimes uh, we can romanticize what that ministry is like, but it's tough. It's tough for the people doing the ministry and it's tough for the people uh, who are in a position where they need that kind of ministry. So I think there's something um, profound that comes from witnessing that kind of ministry in action, but I think we should also be realistic that it's not easy and that there is a lot of self-sacrifice, I think, on both sides of um, people ministering and being ministered to that is humbling in many ways. Your book and your podcast also talk a lot about the intersection of the church, politics, and the plague of, of AIDS and the LGBT community. Um, it's not an easy one. <laughs> no. How do you sort of approach that? How do you... Well more relevant to our audience of young people who look at the church and say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? Look at what they're doing. What do you say to them given your work? Yeah, I understand that sentiment. Uh, there is a lot of hurt and pain um, among young people in general, uh, but also especially among young LGBT people. I would say at the same time, there's something profound about the gospel inspiring people to respond in very merciful ways. So, if you look at uh, where I've been researching HIV and AIDS, it wasn't just the Catholic Church that was uh, perpetuating shame and stigma around HIV. It was every sector of society. Uh, people who today, I think, would even be ashamed of how they acted or what they said back then. But at the same time, there was something about the gospel, about Catholic social teaching that prompted uh, many individuals to respond with care and compassion. So there's something in our faith that can be used in a negative way, and it has been, but there's also something that has prompted people to do extraordinary works of mercy that I think are inspiring to Catholics, people of other faiths, people of no faith, and it's something that we should be proud of and talk about. So I would hope that younger people who are skeptical, and I've been there yeah. in my own life, are 
at least able to see that there is this opportunity for love and compassion that comes from following the gospel. This is a big question. I don't know if we'll put it in the podcast, but where do you, I mean, when you think of the church and uh, where it was in the 1980s and early 80s at the height of this, where the church is now, I would like to think there's been growth. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you see that? And where do you see it in the next, you know, 30, 40 years? Yeah, I'm really conflicted about this question. Um, I interviewed, um, or during one of my interviews for the podcast and then for Hidden Mercy, Mm -hmm. I asked uh, Father Bill McNichols, this young priest uh, who identifies as gay, who was doing AIDS ministry in the 80s. I asked him if he thought things were better today, because certainly from a societal perspective, there's more LGBT civil rights, there's more uh, prominence of LGBT people in public life. And he said he's not sure. Uh, He said back then there was somewhat um, encouraging signs that things were going to get better for LGBT people in the church. He said today there does seem to be sort of a reaction against some of the societal progress, so he's not sure that it's easier today in the church. At the same time, I do see signs of hope um, as I've been going around the country talking about hidden mercy and meeting readers, introducing the stories to young people. There's certainly an excitement that these conversations are taking place, Uh, even though there are certainly challenges. um, There are uh, LGBT people who hold positions of ministry in the church who are open and honest about their lives. There's uh, families, members who haven't given up on the church, even if uh, their sons and daughters maybe have stepped away. So I think there is um, a willingness to explore these conversation topics uh, led by a pope who seems open to wanting to be honest about these questions. So I'm encouraged, even if I think there are still many challenges that remain. Well, speaking of the big guy, um, you got a special correspondence from him. Can I you did. Tell us about that? Yeah. Um. <laughs> we were curious too if you took a page from the note of the uh, Friends of Dorothy House and have it in a box somewhere hidden away, or if you <laughs> I can show you it, do you want me to get it? <laughs> I would love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it will be framed at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in this ridiculous children's book about saints. <laughs> um. Because it was folded, and I wanted to flatten it out. Can you tell us what you're pulling out there? Yeah, so I have this oversized coffee book about saints, and inside is a letter I received from Pope Francis over the summer, uh, written in Spanish, so I had to have a friend help me translate it. Um, But yeah, basically, uh, when I finished writing the book, I wanted to let the Pope know about some of the people in the book, because so many of them had praised Pope Francis, um, had kind of been appreciative of his efforts to make the church more tolerant and more welcoming. So I wanted him to know about that. And I also wanted him to know about the work that that the people I profiled undertook because uh, the Pope often speaks of the church as a field hospital, of kind of being out where people are hurting. And the people I write about in the book were doing that 30 or 40 years before there was a Pope Francis. So I just sent him a copy of the book, sent him a letter, introduced him to some of the characters, and uh, he wrote back, which was (laughs) fairly shocking to me. Um, And it was very cool as a journalist, of course, to have my work recognized by the Pope. Um, 
But what was even more uh, moving to me was that I was able to call some of the people I wrote about in the book and read them this letter before it became public. And uh, they were very moved by it. And it wasn't that they were sort of seeking validation from the Pope. Uh, they were confident in their work and in their faith. But they often did this ministry uh, hidden away and not seen by the church. So now they had this sort of what I call a decades late papal blessing. So it was a really moving experience. Um, and... I don't think a letter from the Pope is going to make all the change that might be needed in the church, but it's at least an acknowledgement that uh, if you do the right thing, uh, eventually history catches up with you and you'll be recognized for that. Um, I won't ask you to read it in Spanish, but is there <laughs> anything in here that you would pull out? Yeah, uh, his uh, the Pope uh, cited Matthew 25, uh, and that, I think, was moving to me because many of the people I interviewed cited the gospel of Jesus' teaching to care for those in need as their motivation. So the Pope recognized that. And then also he recognized that the people I write about in the book uh, undertook this work at kind of a risk to their reputation and their vocation even because there was so much shame and stigma that they did the right thing anyway. So those two parts really stuck out, uh, stuck out to me. We've seen a lot of persecution of those who are you know, in a world where so many people are leaving the church, those few LGBT souls who are still saying, I'd like to be a part of this and so often pushed away. When you get a letter like this from, you know, the Bishop of Rome, what does that mean to you as, as someone occupying that space? Uh, a couple things. So um, I write about in the book how it had been very difficult for me to identify as a gay Catholic, sure. even with friends and family early on, later as a reporter publicly. Uh, and then over the course of writing this book, I had to become more comfortable with it because people were asking me why I was interested in this topic. And that kind of culminates when I write this letter to the Pope and I introduce myself as a gay Catholic journalist. And kind of that fear has subsided to the point where I can tell the Pope this. Uh, and the fact that he wrote back and yeah. um, was willing to engage in this dialogue meant a lot to me personally. But I really see the letter, uh, not as something to me, but to the people who engaged in the hard work before me. I was simply the person kind of relaying the message back to them. So it gives me hope that he is serious about um, wanting to accompany people, uh, wanting to embrace people who might not always agree on everything, but are still connected to one another through the gospel, through the Eucharist. So it was an encouraging moment. Um, and I hope that his invitation to dialogue and accompaniment continues to be taken seriously by uh, Catholics because there's something very powerful about that opportunity to engage with someone uh, without the fear of judgment or uh, without needing to agree on everything. Just that experience of journeying together, I think, is encouraging. I know I can't say that coming out in the New York Times was like on my bucket list, but <laughs> I did it and it, yeah. it hasn't been too too bad. Have you gotten any pushback? No, or? unfortunately. I've been like <laughs> hoping for some controversy to help with book sales, but sure. there's something about the topic that's been appealing to sort of uh, the left and the right in the yeah. church. I was really struck by... Um, Places like New York Times and NPR were very interested in the book, but then also conservative outlets like uh, Andrew Sullivan, sure. Hugh Hewitt. There's something, I think, in these stories that Catholics of any political stripe yeah. will be proud of. So, yeah. unfortunately, no, not much controversy, but <laughs> um, I'm glad <laughs> that the stories. Up for you, so I'm, trying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. 
What's been the response from within the LGBT community? Um, again, a really positive response. There's certainly, um, and understandably, still a lot of hurt from especially LGBT leaders who were active in uh, protest movements in the 80s and 90s. And um, understandably, some skepticism of the project. And I, I understand that. But I mean, at the book uh, launch event that we had in New York, um, there were members of ACT UP who were there who kind of understood what yeah. I was doing and were supportive of that. Members of uh, the Catholic group Dignity, which has a sort of troubled history with the institutional church, as well as LGBT Catholics who are leaders in parishes. So I think um, there is, again, this understanding that these stories, uh, no matter where you come from, there's something moving about people doing the right thing, even in the face of pushback from society. Thinking of our audience of, of young folks who are disaffiliated, is there anything in particular you'd want them to know about this history and, and your work in particular? I would hope that people don't give up on the church because they don't feel welcome. Um, I know it's tempting to walk away, but their gifts are so needed uh, if they feel unwelcome because they side with uh, people who are marginalized from the church. I hope they bring that energy back to the institution because there is something powerful about understanding that uh, prophetic role of calling institutions to account yeah. and that these stories of Catholics who have stood with the marginalized can be a source of inspiration for them. It wasn't easy for them either, but they stuck with it. And as a result, they helped make the church more responsive to people in need. So I would hope they don't give up because there is something powerful about uh, communion with individuals through history who have done the right thing and their gifts are certainly needed. I recall a, a tweet. Um, oh gosh. And now his name's escaping me, but he's a Holy Cross priest, another name, but he comes from a more conservative space in the church. Certainly. Um, He's not the person who I would have expected to have said this on Twitter at one point, but he says many things on Twitter, so you know it's bound to happen. But he just said that if all the LGBT community were to leave the church, there would be no one left in the church to give witness to who they are. And I look at the people that you've talked to through the years and just think they are the witness that the church needs. You know, the marginalized are necessary, or else there's no Church of Christ without the marginalized. So it's just it's profound work. It's really profound. Thanks. Yeah, no, uh, recently at a book event, someone asked me what my favorite part of being gay and being Catholic was. <laughs> and I was so thrown by the question because normally it's a negative question, right? Like what are the challenges you've overcome sure, or sure. what obstacles do you face? And sort of flipping that around as a positive, uh, was a challenge for me. I didn't have a good answer, but as I've been thinking about it the last few weeks, I think it's been that it's allowed me to look at the institution with some, uh, loving skepticism and also recognize when others might not feel welcome and try to work for a church that makes everyone feel included. So there is something about living on the margins of an institution that I think can be a gift. Yeah. So I hope that people recognize that and see it as an opportunity. Um, uh, one last note on that. Just, I believe his name is David in New York. Um, who's a parishioner at St. Francis Xavier. He talked about how, when he first thought about coming back to mass, he sat in the very back row yeah. and now 
Could you tell that? Yeah. So David Pace um, had been through a lot with the church. Uh, his partner died from AIDS. He was active in this group dignity that was kicked out of the church. Uh, he stepped away from the church for several years. He said he bolted away from the church. Uh, and when he wanted to return, he tried to find a more welcoming Christian community. But there was something in his bones. He was Catholic. Um, so he went back to St. Francis Xavier, which had been his parish uh, about a decade earlier. And he was really nervous about encountering some homophobia. So he sat in the very back of the church, ready to leave at the first instance where he didn't feel welcome. But as he sat through mass, he realized he was back home and he had missed it and broke down in tears. And he kept going back, but eventually changed his seat and sits in the front row. On a very hot Sunday in August, I walk in for mass and I sit in the back of the last pew in the church, ready to bolt at the first homophobic thing I heard coming from the pulpit. And at the end of the Mass, I was in tears uh, because I felt I had found a place where I could be who I was I could offer all the gifts that I had been given, and I could be uh, an active participant in that faith community. And so I just want to say thank you, Mike, for this book, this podcast, the work that you're doing, and for all of us at the margins and for all of those who have been left out. Um, But I just want to thank you uh, for your time here and your willingness to share your story. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your interest. To learn more about these stories, check out Mike's book, Hidden Mercy, Catholics, AIDS, and Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Or listen to his podcast series, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. This episode was produced by Tara Kelly, Drew Malcolm, Ben Cruz, and Josh Long. Grotto Network is Director Javi Zubi Zaretta, Senior Editor Josh Nome, Senior Producer Josh Long, Assignment Desk and Event Program Manager Liz Colloran, Web Content Analyst Michaela Douglas, Art Director Becky Rogers, Associate Producer Ben Cruz, Social Media Manager Adrian Garalde, Video Associate Tara Kelly, and media intern, Nick Guiney.